Hello, everybody. You're probably waiting for me to do hello, you know, amigos, amigas, players, playerettes, dude and dudettes, and everybody in between, but I'm not going to do that this time. I think you just did. No, I said I'm not going to do that this time. I did it in a different order, and I didn't lead off with that. So technically, it's not the same intro. But the intro to the show is still the same. Welcome, guys, to Game of Crimes. I am the host with the most, with the most hair uh, and the most teeth, Morgan Wright, here literally with my partner in crime. <laughs> <laughs> the toothless Steve Murphy, but you can call me Murph. <laughs> Toofer. Uh, yeah. what, what did they call that? What, what did he say? If you've ever, if, you know, what Jeff, uh, Jeff Foxworthy said one time, you might be a redneck if you've ever been accused of lying through your tooth. <laughs> Well, he might have been. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, guys, hey, welcome back. This is uh, this will be one of the final times we do kind of a traditional format. We're experimenting with some new formats, so we want your feedback on it. So you hear that on some upcoming episodes um, where we do the intro outro like this, and then one where we're going to surprise you. We're going to embed the guest into the intro and the outro and just do everything at once. So, hey, give us your thoughts. We're trying to get this punchy, you know, Speed things up a little bit. We, you know, a lot of people like the in-depth stuff. We're still going to do that, but we're going to break it into two parts. But anyway, that being said, hey guys, welcome back. Just head on over to Apple and Spotify, hit those five stars. Really let us know what you think. Help us out with the show. We really appreciate it. Also, head on over to our website, gameofcrimespodcast.com. We've got some one of the episodes we have coming up from Tim Stommel. You're going to want to see these videos. Just awesome. You know, you're really right there as they make these huge seizures and some of the stuff they're doing. So make sure you go over to our website. Follow us on that thing they call social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes on Facebook and the Instagram. But Murph, it's one of those questions I have to ask you. It's an existential <laughs> question. Where do you got to be? Not where do you want to be, but where do you got to be three times? You got to come over and check us out on Patreon, uh, Game of Crimes on Patreon. It's We've got content on there that you're not going to hear on the regular podcast. We've got, we get a little more opinionated on there. We've got some special things that we are, we're going to try and make you laugh, but we get serious also. We have our case of the month that we go over. We have a monthly live stream for those at the highest level on our Patreon channel where we'll, we'll come on live with you and, and talk and answer questions, and we'll solicit your input. Uh, we have random surprises. We rate a law enforcement movie every month. We do 911, or like I say, 199, what's your emergency? There's just so much good stuff over there. Come over and check us out, and then let us know what you think about it. That's right. Let us know what you think. Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. That's Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. Did I mention that? that? Did you, what yep. was that? As one nine nine, what's what's your emergency? We don't care because you called the wrong number. There you go. Uh, one of these days, one nine nine is going to be some porn number. Somebody's going to dial that and say, "Hey, hey good fella." <laughs> well, I'll take that as a compliment. Yeah, <laughs> mm. I don't. No, okay. I don't. Anyway, guys, but uh, hopefully you guys are having fun. We're having fun doing this. But hey, before we get started, remember, this is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We take the story seriously, but according to the Title 18 United States Code 21-4, what, Murph? If you haven't figured it out already, we don't take ourselves too serious here. <laughs> no, we don't. And there's some people out there that kind of don't like it, and I don't care. You know, we're being ourselves. We're at that point of life where you get to be our age. It's like, I don't care. It's like Ricky Gervais. I don't care anymore. We're here to have fun. We're here to tell stories, and we want to bring you along for the ride. But the only way we can do that is I have to ask you first, Murph. There's two questions I'm going to ask you, but the first one is, do you know what time it is? I think I do know what time it is. I think it's time for... Small Town Police Blur. And we've got a couple right. stories for you. 
I don't know where this one comes from, Steve, but it definitely has to be a small town for it to make the news. Okay. And I apologize, folks. I don't think we've done this story before, but if you can remember what we've said over the past 73 or 74 episodes, God bless you. You ain't kidding. So, Steve, a report was received at 11.06 a.m. Tuesday that six Oreo cookies were stolen out of residence in the 900 block of Burley Street. The complainant requested extra patrol in the area. Who counts their Oreo cookies? I mean, I do, but who else does? Let me tell you, that's not a misdemeanor. That's a freaking felony right there. You don't mess with anybody's Oreo cookies. If they stole the milk, too, somebody needs to go to death row. Uh, that, that would have been a double felony. That would have been double, and you would have been put on double secret probation if that had happened. Oh, oh my gosh. gosh. You're, but you're right. Who counts their Oreos, and how did they know? Somebody who is obsessive compulsive. That's who. It's got to be an inside job, right? It's an inside job. It's inside something, that's for sure, because those Oreos wouldn't last long in my house. <laughs> that's true here either. Steve, I mean, when you were at DEA, you spent a lot of time on the road. You went to many hotels and motels, right? Still do. Yeah. And if you ever walked into one and asked if there was vacancy, yeah, I mean, sometimes you have to walk in, hey, do you got any rooms, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, unless you're Mitchell DeSlat, uh, he walked into a Baton Rouge, Louisiana hotel and asked the clerk for a room, except the clerk wasn't a clerk. He was a state trooper, and the hotel was actually a state trooper station. That's when he was arrested and charged with driving while intoxicated. And miracles upon miracles, they happened to have a bed for him. And felonious stupidity. That was the, another charge he, they hit him with. What an idiot. Uh, do you have a room available? Yes, sir. For you, we do. Just uh, when, when did your hotel clerk start wearing those thing, that shiny badge? And we don't even take credit cards. Just blow into this little tube and we'll get you a room. You know? An idiot. Oh, now, no. I have never been that drunk. <laughs> If you've ever been too drunk to fish, you might be a redneck. Uh, uh, I've never been that stupid either. <laughs> well, hey, uh, I don't know how big the population of Ravelli, Montana is. I think it's the county's like 40,000. There's a town there. I think it was about 76. But anyway, right. no matter what it is, must be some fun things happening. Stephen Crane broke into the Ravelli Republic. It is a, apparently a uh, newspaper of some kind in Montana. Mm -hmm. And what he did, Steve, he used the computers to watch porn and check Facebook. <laughs> then, then guess what? To cover his tracks, he took a fire extinguisher, took some candy, and doused the whole office, you know, with the fire extinguisher. But it wasn't too tough to find him. They just followed the trail of stolen M&Ms that led to his sister's place across the street. What a moron. Well, I thought you were going to say he drove to the state police barracks and asked if they had room for the night. Yeah, that was his buddy, yeah. <laughs> I, I need a ride. My body's looking for a hotel room. Oh, Me, on the other hand, I got munchies. If he's hungry and candy, you you got to know dope's involved somehow. I mean, Absolutely. Somebody's Absolutely. doing somebody's doing recreational pharmaceuticals that they should not be. Well, maybe smoking a little weed before it, was, it became legal. Yeah. It, I'm hungry, though. I need something, so let me break into a newsroom, watch porn, you know, and check Facebook, good and Lord. then spray a fire extinguisher all over everything. What a good way to end the day. Wow. You are somebody now. Mm. Uh, hey, but also before we get into it, so that's the end of the reading for today. P.A.S. Domine Dane Requiem. Before we get into the rest of this, so make sure you guys go over and join our Game of Crimes fan group run by our favorite mafia yes. queen, Sandy Salvato. You just got to go there and answer a couple questions. She will determine whether you are deemed worthy of entry into the most sacred of halls, uh, the Hall of Honor. Uh, where the fans, the true, the rabid fans mm -hmm. of Game of Crimes hang out and we discuss and uh, cuss and discuss and throw memes around and, you know, generally talk smack. So it's a good place to be. 
some of the funniest people we've ever met. I mean, just, and with big hearts. I mean, it's just, uh, they impress me every time. Big hearts. Love you guys. Yeah. Well, speaking of big hearts, we got a big case and a guy with a big heart and a big case. So this is another one of your buddies. Oh, yeah. I do believe. It is. Dave Gaddis is our guest today. Uh, Dave came on DEA a year before I did. He's a good old Southern boy from Alabama originally, um, but he came on the job and he came in with an attitude to kick ass, take names, get involved. I mean, wait till he tells you where he lived. <laughs> he lived in the in the southern part of Miami where we used to do all the cases. And he's you know here's this this redneck, big old redheaded, well built white boy living in the middle of all that. Couldn't speak a lick of Spanish when he got there. But you're going to hear about his career, the adventures he took. Um, you know, we we just finished another podcast interview with uh, our next guest that's coming up in a couple of weeks, Tim Stommel. And one of the sayings we talked about was you can work the job or you can let the job work you. Dave Gaddis, he worked the job. He took advantage of the opportunities presented to him. He got to travel all over the world and he made it to the highest ranks within DEA. When he retired, he was the, the chief of international operations for all of DEA. So, He's got some phenomenal stories. You're going to hear about his first year on the job and what he endured, how he saved his partner. Another true American patriot and hero that you're going to listen to today. And plus, he's got a book, and we'll talk about it later. But for those of you looking on Amazon or places, it's called The Noble Experiment, True Stories and Hard Truths from My Time in the DEA. So that's one of the books we're going to put out there. But I'm telling you, when you hear... Here's a guy basically fresh out of the academy, and you you look at his reaction, what he did to save not only his partner lives, but other lives. Uh, it's just, uh, I mean, it's just awe inspiring. And so we are ready to bring him on, but Murph, I can't bring him on until I ask you the second question. Mm-hmm. The first one is what time is it? We know what time it was. The second one is, are you ready to play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all the book friendly, game friendly, Dave Gaddis friendly game of crime. This is another episode, everyone, where you need to get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on. You're in for a true adventure today. Bring on Mr. Dave Gaddis. For all that is holy, it took us 30 minutes <laughs> to get this fed lined up to get his ass on this show and he's not My, talking about me <laughs> no and the thing is too what do you do Guys, what my solution to most people is RTFM. Read the fucking manual. He says do allow microphone. No, we have spent 30 minutes unfucking the microphone thing for our next guest and guest of honor in the tech hall of shame. Dave Gaddis, welcome. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you, Morgan. Glad Thank you, you Steve. Here, uh, computer management systems has never been my favorite topic. I think when I started DEA, we didn't even have word processors. We just had typewriters. Well, those were word processors, <laughs> but manual word processors. And if you made a mistake on those, God help you, because I can't tell you how much whiteout I went through back in the day. Then when we got IBM Selectrix, oh, yeah. Yeah, then we had the legal pads and an ink pen. That's what you had. That's right. And then the secretaries yeah. had to type out the reports. <laughs> Either double space or triple space. And the t- and the secretaries were so pissed <laughs> off because of that. <laughs> Trying to- it, it was hard to even you know, have a conversation with them oh, because yeah. you were just constantly throwing yellow pads at them. And nobody could read your writing. At least they couldn't read mine. I had, I majored in pre-med writing. I couldn't even read it half the time. I went back and was like, what did I write here? Yeah, I'm like that, that now. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, well, no, we had fun because... Um, 
One one little click. Who knew one little click that says deny permissions to microphone? But we we figured it out. Uh, we got it done. And Dave Gaddis, former DEA, is on. So hey, let's talk about this a little bit, Dave, because um, <laughs> as we do with all of our guests, we say, "How did you get started in this thing of ours?" You know, we call Cosa Nostra. You know, law enforcement. So. So where are you from and how did you get started in this thing? I was an army brat uh, following uh, my father around from deployment um, assignment here and there. Uh, he was with both the 5th and 7th and I think eventually the 10th group of special forces. I was born in Fayetteville outside of Fort Bragg, North Carolina. 10th Mountain? Uh, no, he wasn't a pilot. He, he was um, Green Beret and uh, two tours in Vietnam. So um, I guess I just had this feeling from uh, watching him be a public servant as a soldier that I needed to do something very similar. Um, decided that law enforcement would be it. So uh, after college, I just decided to start applying for a number of different positions, different agencies, you know, kind of like went through the ABC phone book and uh, uh, ended up... Uh, being very lucky with uh, two responses, one, the DEA, and the other, the FBI. And it turns out that I ended up going with the DEA, which made me very happy in the long run, very happy to be with the DEA. Well, you know, the saying is, <laughs> friends don't let friends do the FBI. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're joking. We've had some good FBI friends on here, but uh, yeah. hey, my dad... Speaking of that, too, we probably at some point may have crossed paths. My dad was a World War II and a Vietnam vet. So uh, having been born at Fort Riley, moved around the world to Iran and other places, um, we were living in Canyon City or Cannon City, Colorado. He went to Vietnam out of Fort Carson, Colorado. Uh, artillery. Okay. Yeah. Hey, who knows? They may have been. My father was in Vietnam uh, in 1966 and then a second deployment a uh, year from 68 to 69. Mm. Yeah, they may have been there at the same time. Yeah. God so you can him. understand how you probably were led at some point into uh, providing some level of public service and what a better way than to be in law enforcement. Yeah. And so when you finally when so tell us real quickly, I mean, so where was your where did you finish up high school at? I finished high school in North Carolina, just outside of Raleigh. And uh, I ended up uh, going to the Air Force Academy Preparatory School uh, because I was not smart enough and did not have grades sufficient enough to get into the academy, straight into the academy, or really, to be honest with you, anywhere else. Uh, no offense to my high school, but as a B-plus student, I found out that I couldn't study for shit. I really needed to learn how to study. So fortunately, I did go to the Air Force Academy prep school. I went through that year. I played football for the Huskies and uh, had a great year and uh, learned a lot about studying. And that kind of changed my course of how I was going to uh, proceed through college. And I ended up back at North Carolina State University, walked on their program um, and uh, did not get a scholarship. Uh, wasn't fast enough, big enough, strong enough, or pretty enough, I guess. So I ended up uh, moving closer to where my parents were at the time, which was in Huntsville, Alabama. And I went to the University of Alabama, Huntsville, and finished out my uh, my three and a half years there. That's how I got my bachelor's degree. Hey, I've seen some of those NC State players. You were pretty enough, I'm telling you. 
<laughs> so I was I was 40 years younger. That's right. <laughs> What'd you get your degree in? Uh, criminal justice, which a lot of the DEA people tend to do. Of course, we have people from all different walks of life come to DEA, don't we? Hey, Dave, but more importantly, what position did you play when you played football? I loved defense and played defensive end. Mm-hmm. Defensive end. All right. Yeah. Protecting. What was he protecting? What were you? What What end were you protecting? Uh, that would be the the water jug. <laughs> you know what? Playing defensive end is going to come and uh, come into uh, play later in your career when uh, you know we all talk about covering our ass. That's called a defensive end, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. There's a lot of CYA in all aspects of the government, and uh, but you know a funny thing, I had um, in DEA. I must have moved every three years, so I had like ten assignments throughout my twenty-five uh, and a half year career, and uh, I didn't find that I ever needed to use my duck and cover drills in Colombia, Mexico, nearly as much as I had to do it in Washington D.C. Uh, that's the truth. <laughs> but cover here comes Derek, or what? that's right that's right oh i have some great stories about Derek, and you know i listened to your podcast show with him it was fantastic but uh he and i go way back we were in the same basic agent trainee class ba 43 back in 1986 so i have some great i did yeah yeah and i uh I couldn't tell you he there's not a better guy or a more suited individual to be doing exactly what he's doing in the world today in terms of uh, pushing back uh, and uh, trying to get some notoriety about this fentanyl threat we have. Yeah. You know, I was I just came back from the International Association of Chiefs of Police Conference in Dallas this past weekend and Derek showed up and you knew when Derek came into the vendor area because you could hear him. You could hear him. You could hear him three minutes before you saw him. Hey, where's that Murph? Where's that Murph? Oh, that's not what he says. He's, he's where's that? Where's that MF and Hillbilly at? <laughs> Is that how he called hey, but, you as executive assistant? Oh yeah, that and, and you know I had the I, I renamed it instead of a horse holder. I renamed it to Derek's butt boy. <laughs> I'll tell you two Derek Malt stories. First of all, he and I we identify one another through code names. And those code names are 46 and 48. The reason we have those, Steve, you remember in our, in, in our training, our basic agent training, you had to do the physical fitness test. Do you remember the highest number that you could achieve in that test? Uh, it was, uh, I think the max was 50 out of all five, right? You got it, 50. Well, one of us got a 46 and one of us got a 48. Who do you think got the 46 and 48? Derek got the 46, you got the 48. Yeah. Bingo. So that's how we actually address one another. <laughs> you know how I figured that out? First of all, looking at Derek, he did, I mean, he looked okay, but I mean, with you playing football and playing defensive end, you know, and stuff like that, figured you might have had a leg up on him. I got to be honest with you, I, I wouldn't have thought him hit, scoring that high. Well, you remember, he was uh, on a national championship lacrosse team, right? I mean, the guy could yeah, run like true. the wind. Yeah, yeah. So we we got to know each other so well. Started off very close in the academy. I remember, you know, he talked about uh, his dad, John Maltz, um, who who everyone knew of um, in DEA at the time in the late 80s. And uh, 
we were we would study. We'd have study sessions. He and I, and uh, instead of studying, I would just sit in awe and listen to the stories, the DEA stories that Derek would tell me about his experiences with his dad from from you know the age of nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen years old, and uh, and. He, I'll guarantee you at 22 in basic agent school, Derek knew more about the inner workings of DEA than most DEA supervisors did at that time. What was his radio number? 705 and a half or what did he call it? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, this is 705 and a half. My dad said that there's a bad guy on the seventh floor. <laughs> That's great, man. Yeah, she went it. into apartment 16C. Now, how would you get, how would you get that kid on the stand to testify that she actually was in apartment 16C? But uh, you know, Derek, there's only one Derek, and he's a great guy. Uh, a second story, you know, fast forward maybe 15 years, we're both up at headquarters. He just shows up from I think Long Island to SOD, not as the special agent in charge. But this was his first time up there at SOD. And uh, he calls me up and he says, 48. He says, I've got a report. I need to get over to headquarters and I don't want to drive all the way down. Can I come by in the morning and leave it with you? And I said, well, sure. I leave about 630 in the morning to get through because this was in Ashburn, Virginia, where I live. Uh, Derek lived not too far from there. So I get up at 445. I get my coffee. I've got my bathrobe on. And I see headlights out in the front of my car at like 5 a.m. And I'm thinking, it's a Volvo, right? And I had just come back from Mexico on a northern Mexico assignment, Nermosillo, Mexico, targeting um, uh, El Señor de los Cielos, uh, Amado Carrillo Fuentes, and his group at Sinaloa. So I thought immediately, hey, have I got a uh, Sinaloa sicario out in front of my house waiting for me to leave work? And then I realized it was a Volvo, and there's no self-respecting cartel hitman that's going to be driving a four-door Volvo. So I walk out there in my bathrobe and my underwear, and sure enough, it's 46. Derek Maltz sitting there at 5 o'clock in the morning ready to give me his report. That's how that guy yeah. started his day every day. He's crazy. High energy. I'm not kidding you, Riz. <laughs> Tell you what, we don't have an energy crisis in America. We just need to figure out how to hook Derek up to a treadmill that powers some of the uh, oh, turbines around here, man. And just wow. Well, hey, but let's let's actually uh, we you know Derek's already had an episode. Let's talk about you now. Yeah. So uh, let's give it back. So I want to get back to you. you said something about the CYA in this book, I, and I don't want to spoil it, but we've got to talk about what you did in the Bahamas. All right. Had lots of fun in the Bahamas, Operation Bat. That's hardly called work, actually, is it? No, it was it was, it was a lot of fun, it was, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> but somebody, when you were there... Great thing about DEA was simply being able to do a great job for a great cause and have a lot of fun doing it. And I, I wrote this book for two reasons. One, I wanted to memorialize you know, some of the work I did so that my kids and grandkids could could see it. They were too young to enjoy any of it as, as it was happening. They didn't know what was going on. So um, that's one. The second is, you know, a lot of people simply don't know who are outside of law enforcement. And maybe even some people who are in law enforcement don't have a real clear idea how much fun you can have working in the DEA. And that's why oh, I, I kind of lightened it up and told some some what I thought were some uh, fun stories as opposed to, you know, the blood, guts, and, and bullets. And um, 
and yeah, Bahamas was was one of those. Had had some great fun in Bahamas. Well, Murph, you referenced the book. We can't, uh, so we're kind of jumping way ahead. But since you referenced it, you got to tell everybody. Give them the name. All right. So the book is The Noble Experiment, True Stories and Hard Truths from My Time in the DEA by Dave Gaddis. Uh, I read the book. It's a book that you, if you enjoy law enforcement stories, you can't put it down. I mean, there's a lot of these stories. I knew almost everybody you referenced in there. In fact, some of the people that you have in your book we've had on the show, Chris Feistel, for example. That's right. used to be your old partner there. But um, it was. Just, I think it's because I knew so many people, but the fact that you put the, I mean, you put like... <laughs> We'll get to the Bahamas story, but you put down what really happened there. Well, let's just say right now that somebody went to the hospital after that event. <laughs> oh, okay. yeah. Let's not, don't say anything about it yet. Okay. We are getting so far ahead. So let's work our way. So let me just ask this. We'll put a pin in it and come back to it. How how far into your career did this Bahamas story happen? Oh, it was relatively uh, early. I was still in Miami. Miami was my first post of duty out of Quantico. Was that your first choice? Oh, no. Not in 1986. <laughs> I wanted to go to Atlanta. I wanted to go to maybe somewhere in North Carolina, Tennessee, where I had grown up. Um, wouldn't have even minded Alabama at the time. Uh, but uh, Miami was where I needed to be, apparently. And uh, for a 24-year-old kid who had um, absolutely no law enforcement background. I mean, my college job, which was third shift at a detention center. So basically I was a guard, uh, doesn't qualify as law enforcement as you well know. So, uh, but it did get me into the Academy and I got out of the Academy. So, uh, they, they thought they needed bodies and they did remember mid 1980s, you had the, uh, the George Herbert Walker, uh, South Florida task force that was being built up. Uh, we didn't have much of a drug threat coming over uh, our southwest border at the time. Everything was coming through the Caribbean, uh, through Haiti, Puerto Rico, through the Bahamas, straight into South Florida. So, How much uh, of that was coming via George Young? <laughs> oh, you know, there were, if, if not hundreds, there were many, many dozens George Young's and Barry Seals and these types of pilots that, that were running dope in every day. I mean, one of the stories in, in the Noble Experiment talks about how we were at the Tamiami Airport in South Miami, uh, just waiting for our controlled delivery, our informant, who was a pilot, to bring in cocaine from Columbia. So we were there at three o'clock in the morning. And a plane just shoots out of the sky and lands right in front of us. And it wasn't our informant. So we sat there and watched a load come in. Well, we had George Young was episode number two for us. We got his last episode before he died. And it was talking with him. It was very interesting, you know, his perspective on everything, too. And we found out some things about him that he apparently had never said about, like, working with the CIA. He had ran dope through uh, Cuba, was paying Raul Castro, what was it, a million dollars a load? I think to be able to navigate through Cuban airspace. So, I mean, that was like the heyday. That was the, that was the beginning at that time. That was kind of like the wild West, wasn't it? For dope smuggling and importing. I mean, if you couldn't make a dope case in, in Miami, you had no business in being, being in DEA, right? That's absolutely true. And the, 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 what was going on in terms of the violence? I mean, Steve, you, you can, you know, I'm sure you can uh, reiterate 
some of your own experiences, but rarely did we have an arrest in Miami when we didn't seize a firearm. These guys were packing every time we went in and grabbed them. And you try to use, you know, you try to use your, 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 in your ops plan, you try to use speed, surprise. Um, it didn't matter. These guys always had firearms with them. And, uh, I guess that's why I wanted to start my book off with the first chapter, uh, swords drawn, because within six months of being there, I was in a shooting. Well, let's, let, let's talk about that because as somebody, like you said, you work detention center corrections, you probably saw a few things. There's probably a few fights in there, but stuff like that doesn't really get you prepared for what's going to go on like in Miami. I mean, when, when we talk about the violence, you know, and the shootings and just the, it's the disregard for life that these guys had at this time. So, um, what we're going to talk about today was very early in your career, right? Six months on the street. That's right. You know, it sounds like Jay Dobbins. Jay, Jay, we talked to Jay Dobbins, you know, from ATF. He was on the job two weeks, wasn't it, Murph, when he mm-hmm. got shot? Got shot in the you know, Yeah, uh, during a dope deal that went bad. So, well, let's talk about the six months leading up to that, because was that six months after you got out of the academy, or was that six months into your career, including the academy? No, that was after the academy. Uh, you're you're not a, you're not a special agent until you're carrying the badge, and they will not issue you the badge until you you're certified and you successfully uh, graduate from the DEA training academy. So you've got your badge, you got the gun, and you got the love of Jesus and your pretty blue eyes. Like anybody name that movie? No, it's the Gauntlet. Clint Eastwood. Come on, come on, you guys. Clint Eastwood, one of the greatest cops of all time, Dirty Harry. Actually, he wasn't Dirty Harry in the gauntlet. Well, we probably thought we all were Dirty Harry when we showed up our first day on DEA. Damn right. Damn right. Yeah. <laughs> Except the gauntlet, he wasn't Dirty Harry, but still, um, I like that. They're at the scene in the desert, you know, with all those bikers, and he's going, well, what makes you think you can take this, Clyde? He says, well, Clyde, because I got the badge, I got the gun, and I got the love of Jesus in my pretty blue eyes. So anyway, no. So you're six feet tall and bulletproof, you know, and now you're out, you know, uh, doing the stuff. So let's talk about your first six months leading up to this. So what kind of things were you getting involved with the minute your feet hit the ground there? You know, even uh, the most experienced uh, uh, police background, when you come in to DEA, it's it's a bit different, right? I mean, investigations are investigations, but um, the international scope of what DEA does is something quite different than I think what any police officer in the U.S. is involved in. So um, when you come in, you have to have a senior partner, you know, and and it's it kind of worked. I don't know about now, but uh, I came on in 1986, and uh, we we can those aren't the real old days, but that 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 takes us back a while, and we didn't have a formal. Um, uh, field agent training program where a senior agent had to monitor everything that a junior agent did, but it organically happened, right, Steve? You would you would find somebody that had some experience at least five, six years with DEA, and uh, they knew the ropes, and they would show you around how to do, sure, you knew how to do your reporting, uh, but, you know, how are you going to land in the middle of this new place called Miami uh, not speaking Spanish and figure out a way to recruit informants. You needed a senior guy to show you the ropes and maybe throw you uh, a, a CS, a, a confidential source, 
here and there so that you could begin getting your your feet wet a little bit. And uh, I spent six months doing that. And uh, I worked with a couple of guys, one of which Steve knows quite well, Ken Peterson, uh, who uh, who showed me the ropes. But I also worked closely with uh, a couple of other enforcement group four uh, Miami division uh, agents. One was Coleman Ramsey. And, uh, and I learned a great deal from these guys. I mean, in six months, you can learn a lot. And you know what? And you were kind of in the same boat as I was. We're small town country boys that don't speak Spanish moving into Miami. I got there in 87, a year after you did, you know, and and I mean, you talk about being naive and a fish out of water. Holy cow. I mean, what a different world down there, but it turned out to be one of the most exciting times of our lives. No doubt. And I'll, I'll tell you, Steve, you and I both recognize the importance of learning Spanish on this job because you realize rather quickly that if you're going to move into the international scope of, of DEA, you have to learn Spanish because this, this was, I mean, if you're looking at, you know, cocaine supply, methamphetamine supply, marijuana supply, heroin supply, most of what we saw in the United States derived from either South America or Mexico. So if you didn't speak Spanish, you were definitely handicapped. Well, and that doesn't even mean you needed to learn it to go have an international posting. Like you said, when you're working a case where the nexus is everybody who has speaks you know, Spanish you know, as their primary language, you're, you're going to need to have that because these guys are operating in Miami and New York and L.A., you know, and all the other places. So... Same thing, you know, having that having that language capability isn't just about getting to a next posting. It's about being able to do your job where you are. Well, let me give you an example. We, we uh, at one point, Ken Peterson, I may have had a month or two on the job. Ken Peterson comes up, taps me on the shoulder and says, he doesn't say anything. He kind of looks at me and he gives me a finger movement. Come with me. So I follow him out and he goes, hey, we've got a lead on a couple of Bolivians. They're Air Force general officers who want to cooperate. This could be a really big case. And back in those days, the early to mid eighties, a lot of Coke was coming from Bolivia and Peru. So, uh, as well as Colombia. So I'm tagging along with them. We go out to the local Taco Bell, which is down at the corner of like uh, walk and walk, don't walk, uh, 15 minutes away from the office. And sure enough, there are these two very well-dressed gentlemen, Bolivian men. I mean, Izod shirts, Izod socks, nice slacks, sharp-looking guys, very you know, good haircuts, military-style haircuts, and they are ready to tell us to break open all the corruption in the Bolivian Air Force and in the Bolivian government at that time. We're talking about 1986 here. And neither one of us, Kenny nor I, could speak with them because they didn't speak English. So we couldn't, we couldn't proceed. I mean, we tried, you know, you use so much sign language and, you know, point here and there. It doesn't get it done. And you have to be able to communicate with these informants if you're going to open the big cases. So at that point, I realized right away, we, we, we had to refer those guys to someone who was a fluent Spanish speaker. I'm sure the two Bolivian officers were quite disappointed. And um, I decided right then I was going to go to Spanish language school and learn this language. Well, a couple of things I want to point out here. One is uh, you talk about Kenny Peterson. 
when I got to Miami in 87, I was assigned to work with Gene Frankar as my senior agent, but Kenny P was in our, our group then, his brand new group enforcement group 10. And those two guys, especially Kenny P, I learned more from them about making the case, how to handle informants, the whole ball of wax than anybody else in DEA. Just, uh, he was a pain in the ass, just to be real honest with you. He's from Buffalo, New York, would bust your stones unmercifully every freaking day. <laughs> but then the other thing is, when I got down there, you know, my wife and I, she had some family up in, La- in Fort Lauderdale. So we moved up to Fort Lauderdale. You didn't choose that, did you? Where'd you move to? Oh, I went right down into the belly of the beast, brother. I was in West Kendall, right yes, around from the Metropolitan <laughs> Correctional Center. <laughs> I got to tell you, man, that's where we did most of our cases. That's where all the criminals live. <laughs> well, that wouldn't make sense. All your criminals are going to be near the correction center. They're either going there, getting out of there, or visiting somebody there. I mean, well, it makes, it, makes the, it makes the drive for their family to come and visit them there much shorter. Much shorter. Well, for that reason, I certainly had to use I most every case. I ended up being the one to take the prisoners away, and it was usually very late at night. But the benefit of it, as soon as I dropped them off, and then gave them to the U.S. federal marshals. Boom! I was home in ten minutes. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Hey, I was going to ask you before we get into the the the, the bigger part of the story. Um, your dad was military. You're growing up uh, in North Carolina. What was your familiarity with weapons uh, before you got to DEA Academy? Had you done hunting? Had you done shooting? Is that something that was part of what you did, or was going to DEA? There's a reason I'm asking this, too, and it's for later. It was part of going today. Was that your first big experience with weapons? Tell us about that. You know, it really was. Uh, my father was not one to really share any stories, war stories. Um, he he was uh, not a hunting enthusiast. Uh, oftentimes, he was deployed, and he couldn't count on a, a steady schedule. So... Um, I, I really wasn't exposed to a lot of firearms. We had firearms in our home, but uh, we we knew well enough not to uh, not to touch them, not to uh, uh, show anybody them. Or uh, it was yeah, it was not a big deal with me. So I, I looked at that uh, when I went to the academy as possibly a positive um, development only because I had not had an opportunity to learn some bad habits. Now, a lot of the uh, the officers, police, county sheriffs, deputies, they, they came aboard. You know, they clearly knew what they were doing, had been trained. But sometimes they had to almost be retrained, you know, because those uh, those firearm instructors are going to want you to do it their way. And I, um, I, I was a blank page for them. <laughs> So was Murph. He was blank too. <laughs> I'm still blank. I never, I never had anything on my page. <laughs> I got to tell you though, when you go to the DEA, well, and you've probably heard this on some of our other podcasts, and I know Morgan's heard this, but the first day you go into firearms training with DEA, it, this is how simplistic the thing is. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a handgun. This is the end the bullet comes out of, and they show you the end of the barrel. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't get any more basic than that, right? Uh, uh, but you know what? You'd be surprised with some people, um, even like you say, bad habits. I remember mm-hmm. basic training, Fort Leonard Wood, all the training they give you. We still had one kid get up at the end of we're uh, doing target practice. That M16 should not have been loaded. It was loaded. And when he pulled the trigger and that round went off, there were drill sergeants coming from 10 miles away to get oh. a piece of this kid's ass. <laughs> <laughs> Private Blazek. 
If you're listening out there somewhere private, Blazek, yeah, dude, we're talking about you. So, no, the reason I ask that is that um, we're going to get in and talk about the shooting, but that's what I wanted to understand is what was your familiarity? What was your level of uh, comfort? So during that time, as you guys started doing raids, you know, as you started serving search warrants and stuff, how often, you, like you said, I know you found firearms, but before the shooting, had you ever run into a hairy situation or, or a one where uh, shots were fired or there were shooting, you know, uh, you know, suspect down or anything like that? No, I hadn't. All I'd had to do was wrestle down a few people, but I had no exposure to uh, to to combat with firearms. So this was a whole this was an entirely new experience for me. Yeah. And like I said, we're, we're not trying to teach people. We're going to get into that because this is one of those things that occurs early in your career. So there's not a lot to talk about before you get there. But um, had you had you gone through any additional firearms training after you got out of the academy? Was there any uh, initial qualification when you got to Miami or were you just once you got out of the academy? That was it until this incident. Oh, no, you have to uh, qualify quarterly in the field. And uh, isn't it Steve quarterly? Yep, it used to be. I'm not sure if it still is, but it was back then. I believe it was, yeah, quarterly we had to, especially if you carried your uh, your your SMGs, the submachine gun Colt 9mm SMGs, which I had, um, you, you had to qualify quarterly, and so you would qualify with all your service weapons. Now, at that time, in 1986, the DEA issued weapon that you left Quantico with was the Model 65 Smith & Wesson Revolver, 357 Revolver. So you had six bullets in it at any given time. We didn't even get the 65s. I think we got, was it a Model 13? Yeah, and I thought that was hilarious. Which, you know, when they had fixed sights. Every firearm that we seized in, in Dade County, Miami, was a semi-automatic or a literally fully automatic uh, shoulder arm, you know, the Mac 10s, the Uzis. Uh, the, oh, the, the Mac 10s were, yeah, they were, that was the scourge of a lot of these folks. That was kind of like the version of the Saturday night special for automatic weapons. That's right. And everyone seemed to have them who we were pursuing. So, um, yeah, in fact, in that shooting I had six months into my career, I was holding that uh, that revolver. Uh, fortunately, I had a semi-automatic that I had recently purchased from another agent, um, and I had it stuck in the small of my back. The reason I didn't have it principally drawn was because I had not yet qualified with it. But you hadn't qualified with it, but you're still carrying it, so. Yeah, you're damn right, and I was willing to use it if I needed to. Hey, look, better to be tried by 12 than carried by 6. Amen. Um, well, let's lead up to that. So, but, so. Let's let's tell people what we're leading up to. So we're talking about the shooting of your partner and a shooting you were involved in. W when did this happen? Uh, you know, month and year. It was in January of 1987. Okay. And let's talk about leading what led up to this. So you're obviously working lots of cases. So who's your partner at the time that you're working with on this? My partner was uh, A.D. Wright. I uh, don't think he's... Uh, Related to you, Morgan, but he could be. I don't know. Um, but AD is he good looking, smart, capable of getting your ass onto a podcast by troubleshooting. Well, he he saved my life, so he's got my vote. Yeah, I, I can tell you okay. that. But he uh, he and I had uh, just kind of naturally uh, uh, pulled together. Uh, we we were both. He had about a year um, more than I did, but uh, and maybe that's one reason why we just kind of 
pulled together naturally uh, and started working some cases together. We were doing a lot of by busts back in those days. Uh, of course, by bust being an informant saying, hey, I know somebody who's got five, six kilos and uh, they're just willing to sell it. So you don't spend a whole lot of time. You do a debriefing. You use the informant to go out, do an undercover meeting. And then once you come to agreement on price and, uh, and, and merchandise quantity, you just basically set it up. You may flash some money. They show you the dope and then everybody moves in and arrest them. So we were doing those kinds of cases in the first uh, six months that we were together and, uh, you know, building our own bona fides and our experience. And, um, and, and we spent a lot of time together. We had a couple of other agents too, like Chris Feistel, who has been on your show before. Um, yes, he has. <laughs> and wait till we get to episode 12 of the real DEA Narcos talking about the real DEA Narcos Cali edition. You may not have heard this one, but Chris almost had to take one for the team. We'll, we'll talk about that. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that. Hey, but, can Steve, you, but describe, uh, describe AD for us. Cause I think this explains why you two gravitated towards each other. Yeah. AD was from Jacksonville, Florida. Um, a rather large unit. As I've described him before, uh, he played, uh, walked on, as I walked on at NC State, he walked on at Florida State. Uh, AD, about 6'1". Uh, at the time, he was probably a svelte 230, 235. Um, just, you know, kind of a giant of a man. And uh, great shape. And um, we we just got along great together. You know, he had, a, he had a, more importantly than his physical presence was his personality, right? I mean, he's like this gentle giant, very quiet, yet when he said something, he meant to say it. And uh, and he was usually funny, whatever he said. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he was. <laughs> well, um, l- let's talk about then the case that leads up to this. So what kind of cases? So you said a lot of these were by bus. Um, what were you and AD working on um, that was leading up to this shooting? We were actually supporting uh, another agent in the same group who had uh, uh, a contact in a a chemical uh, sales company uh, that was in the South Florida area. And uh, and this individual, whenever weird uh, transactions would come forward for the purchase of precursor chemicals, precursor chemicals meaning these were certain groups of chemicals that are required to manufacture a certain drug. So you know if you're going to make cocaine hydrochloride, you're going to need sulfuric acid, hydrochloric acid, uh, you know, some kind of diluent like uh, MEK or, or uh, ether. Uh, acetone, things like that. So this individual would call uh, as as a source of information. He would call one of our agents and say, "Look, we've got a guy who's coming in. He's paying cash. Uh, you know, he's first pay- clue. Yeah, he's paying me four, five, eight thousand dollars to get these chemicals, and uh, we would actually respond, go out and sit around this place and watch the guy come and pick them up." He would pick up the chemicals, usually in some kind of large van, maybe a, a, a like a, a a truck, a box truck, or something like that, and uh, and then we would follow them to wherever they were going, and uh, usually they went to either one of two places: the the storage facility where they kept the precursor chemicals, and then uh, broke them down 
and took them to the lab, or sometimes they would take those chemicals directly to the site of where their, their clandestine laboratory or clan lab was located. So that's what we were doing that very day, is we were following somebody who was going in and making a cash purchase and leaving with chemicals that seemed to be making something that we didn't want him to have. Well, so that's interesting because when you think about Miami and stuff, you think the cocaine's already coming in. It's wrapped. It's in kilos. You know, it's being dropped. It's being, you know, brought in by uh, cigarette boats. It's being brought in by plane, by ship. Who the hell in, in Miami or in that area is making cocaine hydrochloride? I mean, was there a big market for that, for them to do their own production there? I think that's a great question because a lot of people don't realize in the early to mid-80s, a lot of cocaine base was coming into South Florida. It wasn't just cocaine hydrochloride. So when you start, when you take the coca leaf and you pick it off and you throw it into a, a poso pit and you mix it up with with diesel or acetone or what some kind of diluent that breaks that leaf up and eventually extracts a chemical called echognine, which is what makes cocaine. You go in through various stages, right? So you'll go from from the paste. It makes coca paste. And then from coca paste, you mix a number of chemicals to reach coca base. And then you have to add more acids and chemicals to coca base to make it into that pretty white, fluffy cocaine hydrochloride that everybody likes to uh, uh, send up their noses. So... Um, at that time, we had a lot of base that was coming in, and we didn't know why, um, other than the fact that uh, the two theories were it was it was just as easy for them to simply uh, ship the base out and and work the labs in South Florida. Um, another theory was that actually coca base is water resistant, right? It's waterproof. It's not. It will not break down and and dilute. If it's mixed with water, where cocaine hydrochloride will. So perhaps that was the theory. They just wanted to make sure that as it was, you know, being airdropped into the ocean to awaiting go fast vessels or whatever, that it wouldn't, that if it did get wet, it wouldn't be completely ruined. But um, in this case, they had coca base that they were having to convert into hydrochloride. So let's talk about the economics of that for a second, too, because you're going to get a certain amount for transporting per kilo of Coke. We know from talking to George and Luis Navia and guys like that, they were getting a certain amount per kilo to bring that in. Did it make more sense economically for them to bring paste in because they could get it for cheaper, you know, per kilo? They could bring in base cheaper per kilo, and it was much easier for them at that time to acquire the precursor chemicals in the United States. I think at that time, and, and that's that's another perfect theory, is that if they were having some challenges in getting the exact precursor chemicals they needed in the deep jungles of, of Peru or Bolivia at that time, then it was better just to smuggle base and then have somebody do it in the Everglades. Right. And you hit the nail on the head there because the challenge of getting those not only getting the precursors into Colombia, going international, because most of the precursors are coming from uh, other countries, not not necessarily the United States, although the U.S. was one of the sources of these chemicals. 
But then you've got, once they get into Columbia, you've got to get them out to those jungle labs, which, you know, that if they haven't built the lab yet, that means taking them in on a mule. That's right. That's what I get back to. It's all, look, this is all about economics for these guys too, because you're right. You take it, let's say a, a can of acetone costs 10 bucks. I'm just making it up. By the time you transport it down to Columbia, take it into the jungle and everything else, that can might've costed you a hundred bucks, you know, mm-hmm. to get that in there. Uh, and it's all about supply and demand, right? So the, 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 the cheaper you can make it, the closer you are to the source of supply for all that stuff. But to your point, though, because the U.S. started getting wise about the precursor chemicals, look, I think back to Timothy McVeigh and, and, the, and the crap he bought to build his bomb, ammonia nitrate fuel oil um, bomb. They were not regulating a lot of those chemicals. And it takes things to happen before we start saying, hey, when people start buying these things in quantity or in bulk, you know, we've got to start letting people know about it. It's not like we're trying to track you, but how many people have a need for two tons of uh, fertilizer that are not a farmer? Yeah, or potassium permanganate or or acetone or like the acid you talked about. It's crazy. God, think about this, folks. If, if you sniff cocaine for you folks out there, pro tip, you're putting what hydrochloric acid, sulfuric acid into your nose in some form or fashion. Hey, just cut. Yeah, just cut out the middleman. Just go get a bottle of sulfuric acid, put a straw in there. I'm, I'm kidding. Don't do that, folks. If somebody says, yeah, just look. But Morgan said. <laughs> yes, you want the me? Anyway, no, 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 don't do that. Our lawyers say we can't say stuff like that. But uh, but getting back to that, so um, I want to ask you, though, about it takes a facility, right, to make this. So on the other side of that, as you were tracking these chemicals, what were you doing to track where they where it was being processed at? Like you said, it was, we know the Everglades, you go out there, shit disappears out in the Everglades. It's hard. It's like being in the jungles, right? It's its own little unique bio, you know, sphere. It's its own ecosystem. How did you track the chemicals to find out where the labs were? Well, this is a great question. And it takes us back to your question of what did you do for six months? Because as I'm thinking about this answer, I remember we were constantly in the an area which is on the outskirts of the other Everglades called the Redlands. It was southwest of Miami. And uh, we were out there almost every night doing surveillances because people would either pick up precursor chemicals or we would get calls from someone that says, hey, something looks weird. Uh, I'm getting some very strong uh, ammonia, uh, smells or ether smells. And, um, we would go out and sit for hours, if not days, uh, on these farms out in the Redlands, uh, which would essentially, uh, bring us to these labs. We were constantly working cocaine labs in that time. In fact, enforcement group four was called the clan lab group. That's essentially what we were tasked to do was to take out the labs. Sometimes, like Steve worked in Group 10, if group someone from Group 10 found that there was a clandestine lab somewhere, they would call our group and we would have to respond because we went through the training on how to process a lab, a dangerous, toxic lab, and, uh, and we, that's all we did. So, yeah, I mean, it was it was what we did constantly was conduct surveillances in very high rural areas using aircraft surveillance. And uh, and you become a pretty uh, a pretty skilled surveillance agent when you have to follow somebody in the middle of the Everglades when it's just you and their vehicle on Tamiami Trail uh, for about 80 miles without them discovering that you're following them. 
I could just see the surveillance work and you get the new guy. Look, we can't take out an airboat. We can't do anything. You got to put these waiters on and you got to follow very quietly behind these guys. I, I tell you what, there was a, we had a case. Uh, in fact, Kenny P and I had an informant that uh, was a pilot that was flying the load in and landed on a road out in the Everglades over next to Collier County, which is on the west side of, of South Florida. And to do surveillance in there, I mean, there's nobody back there except the bad guys and the critters. So you're going to love this, Dave. You know, Jeff Booty and Tommy Golden volunteered to do foot surveillance in the glades. One of them, Tommy went out and got him this, or I can't remember his Tommy or Jeff, but anyway, they got him one of those jungle hats that had the netting, the mosquito netting that came down and tied around your neck. Looked funny as hell. But those guys got in the swamps, man, and that's what saved the case. Because we had customs, was they had a they had an airplane up following our CI, and they oh, we got 100% confirmation. They flew right on up to Tampa while our CI was landing the damn load in the Everglades. So if it had been Jeff and Tommy out there, you know, sacrificing themselves like that, holy cow. Yeah, and it's there's only so many there are only so many mosquitoes you can shoot with your nine millimeter handgun, right? After that, they're going to eat you alive. You're not kidding. <laughs> there are some vicious ones out there too. You see the size of some of them. If you ain't strapped down, they're going to carry you off. Oh, they they come and tug, peck you on the shoulder and bite the sting the shit out of you. <laughs> All right. So, but you were following. So during that six months, did you find? Bunch of labs, a few labs. You know, what was your success rate? Oh, yeah, we were hitting labs constantly. Um, another one of, uh, of, of my chapters uh, is called uh, Out for a Stroll, and it was about a, a, a young agent and myself. He was my actual roommate in Quantico. He also was um, assigned to Miami. He and I ended up just go checking some addresses that I knew existed, and we ran across a lab just from the smells of ether. And... Uh, we called uh, the supervisor, John and Draco, a.k.a. Uh, Johnny Arms, and uh, uh, he basically sent the troops out, and we hit a, a full, I think there was like 60 kilos of coke, and uh, all this hydrochloride that was in liquid form being being manufactured at the time, and that was just me and my my roommate going out for a stroll one night in the Redlands. Let's talk about that because you talked about the clan lab stuff, the clandestine lab stuff. Um, there is there are procedures for like when you had meth labs and stuff like that, and then you've got your cocaine labs. What's the difference between taking out a cocaine lab and a meth lab? Do you have to follow the same procedures? Do you have to call in um, 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 the, the 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 super fun folks, you know, with uh, EPA or you know how does that work? What's the difference between taking down a cocaine lab versus like a meth lab? Not then you didn't have to. I mean, we weren't That's seeing right. too many methamphetamine labs. That came a little later, like in the late 1980s. But in the mid-80s, all we dealt with were coke labs. Um, maybe one or two exceptions up in Pinellas County. But um, when we handled even a, a couple of meth labs, all we had basically was our uh, self-contained breathing apparatus uh, that was issued to our group. And, uh, and, and basically gloves, right. And a mask. So, um, the problem with a meth lab is that the precursor chemicals used to manufacture it, if they're mixed at the wrong time, they can explode. Um, a cocaine lab will not necessarily do that. However, if they've got ether present, the ether can quickly want to light a match. You do not want to light your <laughs> cigarette. So, and we have had, we, we had, we had a Kindle 
uh, you know, which is um, a suburb of Miami, Southwest Miami, a Kendall uh, house that exploded. I mean, uh, it's like two in the afternoon and all of a sudden the garage doors, boom, get blown out because some guy was, uh, you know, making cocaine in his garage. So how many of those labs were cartel versus, um, you know, entrepreneurs, you know, guys just saying, Hey, I want to make a quick buck. Did it take, I mean, it would seem like it would take some serious cash to set up some of these things. It did. And we were able to identify a couple of uh, heavy hitters from Colombia who were uh, financing this. The, the, uh, now, Castrillon group, uh, had a number of those labs and, um, and we would take them down, but there would be limited information. This was more of Intel that we collected that connected these labs in Florida directly to, uh, to the Colombian cartels. But yeah, you have to have a lot of money to finance that, you know, you needed to have a location. You need to have a, a generally desolate and isolated, uh, a lot, uh, to hide it in. You had to have vehicles, to store the, to transport the chemicals. You had to have the money for the chemicals. And, um, uh, these people were, uh, were, were fairly well funded. All right. So, so we've established there's a lot of money in cocaine, uh, and a lot of violence in cocaine. Um, before the shooting, what was the, what was the worst incident you'd been involved in? Uh, the worst incident probably I'd been involved in involved, uh, uh, just a couple of arrests where, uh, you know, some bottles were being thrown at us. Uh, you know, at one point I caught a beer bottle in my, in my upper mouth and knocked my two front teeth out. They had to be capped. Um, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold up. Rewind. <laughs> yeah. So you can't bypass stuff like this. You just, we get guys like you just want to gloss over. Yeah. I caught a beer bottle in my mouth, knocked out my front teeth, but nobody, Should what happen. the hell, what kind of a beer bottle was it? A long neck? I mean, who, who throws? Unless it was Bush or something like Miller Lite, I can see why you might throw that away. But do you even remember what kind of beer it was? Uh, I didn't care. No, all I meant, all I remember is total numbness in my entire face. But we were making a traffic stop late one evening uh, as a group. We had to make a traffic stop in a in, in another suburb of Miami called Liberty City, and um, I pulled over uh, behind the. Uh, uh, the vehicle that was making the traffic stop, we had a vehicle in front of it, one behind, and I was the second behind. And uh, just to cover my guys, I stepped out of the car and uh, basically kept myself on the fender. And out of nowhere, from the night, uh, this bottle came across the street and whopped me right in the mouth. So, yeah, that was probably the worst thing before my shooting. You got to so, love it. <laughs> Well, I'm sitting here thinking, okay, so, uh, you get whacked in the mouth that, that when number one, that had to hurt like a hell, like you say, but number two, did that not keep you off duty for a while? Oh no. The guys had a great time joking about my teeth, you know, coming from Alabama and North Carolina, they, they thought this is the way I was supposed to look. Well, hell, <laughs> you're coming from, you had teeth, right? <laughs> coming from Alabama, you lose two teeth. That might've been 50% of your available, uh, you know, uh, protuberances. Listen, that's the thing about it. Steve can tell you, Steve, am I lying or dying here? I mean, if anything bad happened to an agent, he was like a, 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 just a, a limping lamb and, and a group of wolves, right? I mean, if you had... Uh, oh, that's it's like vultures, man. You are screwed. The vultures are going to descend on you. Hey, you remember, you remember group five. Dave Williams was in that group. Who We went to college together. 
they had an actual trophy. They call it the Goat Fuck Award. <laughs> and it had a goat on top of the trophy. And if you had something like that happen to you or you did a case and it just ended up being a goat rope, <laughs> you had the trophy sitting on your desk, man. There was no sympathy whatsoever. Yeah, I heard a story. That that happened one time and uh, uh, one agent had like three duds in a row. So they ended up bolting it to his desk. <laughs> He couldn't move it. Uh, we had some fun. Not, not yeah, not without a wrench. <laughs> hey, remember when we talked to Zach uh, when we were talking about Victor Booth, the, the uh, informant they were working with? He says, "You have the fuck of the dog." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that means something in Russia or wherever. Uh, it means something. Yeah, you have the fuck you. of the dog. But yeah, uh, so yeah, the look, we've all been involved in goat ropes. So, uh, but how long did that keep you out of action? I mean, I mean, you had because you. I mean, like I said, you had to get them to have, I've, I've lost a partial, you know, on one side where I had to get a permanent crown. That hurts. Oh, yeah. It sucked. Yeah, it sucked. I mean, I was able to get to a dentist in, in, in a day or two. But while I was waiting, uh, I mentioned that Agent Coleman Ramsey, he was working undercover uh, that took us to uh, a place, a very, very isolated area outside of Knoxville, Tennessee. The source of supply had been locked up in Miami and was giving up. We were going down the ladder in this case. But uh, six kilos outside of Knoxville, Tennessee in the in the 1980s was a lot of dope in, in Knoxville. So I went with Coleman and we, we took, um, we kind of made a, a, a controlled delivery, if you will, took six kilos to Knoxville. Um, of course, it was all controlled in a gym bag as we're going through a commercial airport, you know, both on both ends, Miami and Knoxville, you should have seen back then you had private security guards. There was no TSA, right? You should have seen the lady when she looked, actually looked in there and saw six. She said, what are those six packages, those six bricks? And I said, cocaine. I thought her <laughs> jaw was going to hit the, uh, the table. <laughs> Then I had to explain oh, to her and show her a badge and a few things like that. No, off I went. So we ended up doing, uh, during that time, we ended up doing, I think that was actually when my teeth were cracked. So uh, had a great time. Didn't slow down at all. Yeah, it was, it, was, uh, it was a lot of fun, man. More importantly, did you find the SOB who threw the beer bottle and knocked your teeth out? No, never did. Never did. That was a rough area and a rough crew. We ended up uh, grabbing one guy uh, who actually wanted to cooperate. And um, his wife went after him with a hatchet when she found out. <laughs> okay. You know, some of some of these people you just can't. Yeah, some of these people you just, uh, you, you, you can't make up, you know, what they would do. But running informants was probably, number one, the most exciting and enjoying part of it. But it was also the most frustrating. Right, Steve? Some of these informants, oh my gosh. The, it's like you tell them, you tell them to go right. They would go left. You know, we used to, if we had a down afternoon or a down day where either you're doing paperwork or just nobody had any cases going that day, you know, some enforcement activity or something operational on the street, we'd go follow our informants around just to see what they were up to. And it, it helped when it came time for integrity questions. If you're going to put them on the witness stand and you can testify that, yeah, you know, we, We've done surveillance only multiple times, and we didn't see anything that we sus consider suspicious. But on the other hand, you just never knew what you might see them doing. <laughs> we had yeah. this one Colombian attorney, man, and he was whew, he was a piece of work. And he would run counter surveillance runs on you. You know, he would do counter surveillance checks. Well, you were you you remember there were times when 
every now there would be a lull, there would be a case lull in the group. You wouldn't really have much going on. You'd be in between in between trials. So what we would do, and this was the day before cell phones, right? Home Depot would have 20 pay phones up against the wall there <laughs> in Kendall. Yeah. We would just go out as a group and we would sit on the pay phones. It wouldn't take 15 minutes before we'd be on a full-fledged surveillance because of just the behavior of, of how, you know, a guy was using three pay phones almost simultaneously. And then he would jump in his car and take off. We actually found a lab like that one time. Yeah. Unbelievable. Unbelievable, man. Well, you know, that reminds me of when we were talking to Paul Crane and Abe Perez um, about going after El Chapo. Steve, remember that part where they were sitting there and they see this Cadillac come in and then Paul is like a divergence. They ended up making a case where they got like, what, 90 kilos, 100. Yeah. I don't remember. Some big amount because they were fucking bored and they go. Yeah, let's go follow this guy. And they follow yeah. this Cadillac and it turns up being a huge, huge amount of coke. Yeah, well, in South Florida in the 1980s, that was a target-rich environment. Oh, I'll bet. Uh, it was bloody easy. Yeah. We need to get back on AD story, though. <laughs> well, that, that's, that's, that's what we're getting to because we're kind of setting the stage of all of this stuff that's going on. So, so the whole thing about this is things are pretty active. I mean, you're going – your op tempo is pretty high. You know, things are going on all the time. Let's now let's let's lead up to the, uh, you know, the two days leading up to the shooting. So what so you're working with A.D., you're getting these precursor chemicals. What's the op? What's the plan? What are you going after? Who are you who are you going after and what's your mission? Well, through the uh, the surveillance is a couple of days before the shooting. We had identified, I think, three or four locations where individuals associated to this purchase were at. Because, you know, when you pick up on somebody on an initial surveillance, that only leads you to a secondary surveillance, right? They'll go to a house where three other cars are located, and then those cars will leave. So you try to follow those cars, right? So you're splitting your surveillance up, and you're expanding your investigation. Um, of course, you're doing a lot of background work as you're conducting the, uh, the surveillances, too. You're calling in license plates. You're doing criminal history checks on the people that come back to the plates, and you're finding out if, you know, somebody has uh, a drug trafficking background, um, whether they've had any kind of you know, criminal history, uh, assaults, things like that. So we'd been doing that a few days. And uh, we ended up having about three or four locations that we wanted to go ahead and hit, of which one where we, we were fairly convinced there were, there were drugs, we got a search warrant for, a federal search warrant. And the assistant U.S. attorney was Lee Stapleton at that time, who we worked splendidly with. She was outstanding. And I'm, I'm friends with her today. Um, she actually wrote the forward in the Noble Experiment. So um, I, I, she, she was terrific. She was helping us work this uh, uh, search warrant. But then on the other locations, we didn't have enough PC, I suppose, to remember I'm six months on the job. I'm assuming that the call was we didn't have enough PC to get the warrants, so we were going to do the knock and talks. And a knock and talk, as I explain in the book, is, uh, is just a law enforcement tactic to um, introduce yourself to whoever you're interested in talking to and have them basically agree to open their doors and open their lives to you and tell them everything that's going on. And you would think that that's, that's a very difficult thing to do. Why would a criminal talk to a cop and admit to anything? But back in the day, 
you would be surprised how many people would open their doors to you and just say, hey, yeah, you can walk in thinking that they could hide something or that we didn't know more than we did. So in that case where AD and I and a third agent went to the house for a knock and talk, we knew who the guy was, or at least we, we had his alias, and, uh, and we, but we didn't have any of his background, but we knew where he lived, what cars he drove, and, uh, but there was a lot that we didn't know about him. Hey, players, that is the end of part one. Part two, as always, comes out on Thursday. In the meantime, check us out at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook, at the Instagram. But where you got to be, where you got to be, where you got to be, got to be on Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We have a ton of good stuff, including if you are at the right level, Guardian of the Realm and Warden of the Throne, we have just released part one, episode one of The Real DEA Narcos, talking about The Real DEA Narcos, Cali Edition, Chris Feistel and Dave Mitchell, Go in-depth, 16 hours, about how they took down the Cali cartel. Information you will not hear anywhere else in the world, not on Netflix, not anywhere, not in a book, only right here on Game of Crimes at patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. In the meantime, also go check out our webpage, gameofcrimespodcast.com. We've got the latest merch, pictures for every episode that we put up, books that our guests write. We only put up books that they write. We put them up there. So we thank you once again for being a player in the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the... Game of Crimes.